なも妙法蓮華経なも妙法蓮華経なも妙法蓮華経。Hi everyone, good morning or afternoon, whenever you're watching this.、Uh, I hope this finds you in. Oops, sitting on my robe, funny. Finds you in good health and secure.、Um, boy, the camera really picks up detail, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. A、uh, little bit different video today. Not that different. I'm I'm doing different videos all the time.、Um, I wrote a, a forward in、uh, my transliteration of the Lotus Sutra with annotations and so forth, and、um, I've completed my first round of edits, and、um, I'm sure it's. There's lots of little errors in it and so forth that I still need to fix, and I've ordered a copy. So I, for me, it's easier to just look at a page and mark things, and、uh, doing that electronically just doesn't work for me. So、uh, it'll it'll be it takes a couple of weeks to get that book shipped. So as I'm waiting for it, I thought、um, I did something in the forward to this book that's kind of,、uh, and now that I think of it, more about what. Uh, quantum life Buddhism is for me,、uh, or the Threefold Lotus Kuan School, which is what our Sangha is. Okay,、um, so what is it that I'm doing here? I have on threefoldlotus.com a link、um, on the、um, the origins of TLK, so how this school came about.、Um, But in the forward to the Lotus Sutra translation that I've got out there now, that you can find as an ebook, or if you're willing to to spend the money, books are getting really expensive. There's a hardcover six by nine copy、uh, that I'm providing. It's all the same book, the、uh, the regular book with the the、uh, mandala image on it、um, that features prominently. Is、uh, about an eight and a half by eleven. It's actually it's more. It's an A4、uh, size, so it's a little、uh, different from that. Anyway, more of a workbook size, right? That you can mark in and so forth.、Um, the smaller hardcover is more of a, a reference book, right? Just like the Buddhism reference book that's now、uh, online as an ebook,、uh, volumes one and two combined, which I just thought made more sense. Um, it's some what is it, 570 pages or something like that. So it's a big book, but、uh, and I'm not sure if I'm going to make that available. Maybe I'll make that available as a hard cop,、uh, hardcover. Oh, they are hardcovers. What am I saying?、Um, but right now, volume one and two in print are separate volumes. Should I combine them? Let me know in the comments. Let me know what you think. Anyway. I thought with this video, what I would do is,、uh, as I review the forward to make sure it's coherent, that I would read it with you and、uh, cover these basic、um, aspects of our school. So、um, I'll just tell you the titles of each section. The first is the Mahayana. What is the Mahayana? What does this school? Understand the Mahayana to be. What do I, in in my years of scholarship and、uh, study and practice, what do I understand the Mahayana to be? Useful.、Um, Shoju versus Shakabuku. 
This is an ongoing debate. What did Nietzsche mean? Well, how do you interpret Nietzsche? What did uh, Shakyamuni have to say about it, right? Uh, identification. I bring that subject up often, and it's not a common subject or, or a word used in uh, modern parlance of Buddhist practice, but it should be because identification is the crux of the, of the, the uh, around which Buddhism is built, okay? So I have a, a paragraph or two on that. Scholarship. What do we mean by scholarship? And then a, a section called Buddhism is about the mind. You often hear me say that. So I go into it a little deeper here. What do I mean when I say that? Uh, then um, probably my favorite part, not necessarily yours, but having said all of that, stratification of the mind. Buddhism divides the mind up into different consciousnesses, right? Always has, right? The Nidana, the 12 link causal chain, how many consciousnesses there are, the Skandhas, the so on and so forth, the Amala, the Alaya, the Mano consciousnesses, on and on, the repository of karma, all of that. Uh, then a, a brief section on Buddhahood and stuff. And then in that Buddhahood and stuff, I bring out the ninth consciousness, that final addition to round out human sentient mind. And then I end with a paragraph on the Bodhisattva of the Lotus Sutra, because there is a distinction. People argue about it, but it's a distinction, right? Shakyamuni talked about Bodhisattvas throughout his teachings, but in the Lotus Sutra, Bodhisattva is a different thing. It's, it's a different echelon of Bodhisattva, right? So, uh, and that's it. So, I'm just going to get into it. I don't know how long it's going to take, but that's the goal for this uh, video, this podcast. So, I'll get into it. The Mahayana. The Mahayana, as it is referred to several times in the various Lotus Sutra translations, is actually a development of scholar monks whose life dedication to the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha was to accomplish, as instructed by Shakyamuni, to propagate the meaning and essence of the teachings rather than the vernacular and words of a bygone time. Right? Shakyamuni specifically said that his teachings should be taught in the vernacular, the language of the common folk in whatever region it was being taught. Right? He didn't write stuff down. His teachings were oral teachings, meant to be memorized and inculcated into our thinking. But in the Lakavatara Sutra, he made very, very clear to one of those monks who kept questioning him, him that basically the same darn question and I have videos about that, and you can go watch that and hear the words of the Langavatara, where Shakyamuni gets a little perturbed. <laughs> you can sense his, ah, his frustration. And he comes back at this monk and says, you know, basically, you're asking me the same question, uh, moving the words around. Like, somehow, if you're struggling with what this means, then you should be looking for what it means instead of playing with the words. Try to understand, I mean, the whole idea of teaching with stories, parables, and analogies, right? 
metaphors, similes, all of that. What are those devices for? They are expedient devices. How much time has Shakyamuni dedicated to explaining expedient means? It's kind of ironic because rather than explaining expedient means, what we should be doing is hearing the expedient means to explain something that is very difficult to explain. Buddhaness, Buddhahood, the engine of life. From energy through formation to the realms of form. How do you talk about something that is formless, timeless? Yeah? So, he was convinced that if anyone was going to understand the teachings of Dharma, to experience Dharma, they would have to do so on their own terms. That's why I say all the time, Buddhism is an individual practice. The way you get particular insights and aha moments and get Buddhahood is from your filters, epistemology, right? So nobody, that's why nobody can, if if it was easy, Shakyamuni would have just handed out, you know, little, I don't know, discs. Here, eat this, or maybe a suppository. <laughs> Here, Buddha. Here, feel enlightenment. <laughs> right? Even his attempt in analogies to do that by sending out the ray of light from his head, his forehead or his top knot, whatever, or every pore of his body, as he's done in some examples, right? Is about that. I'll give you a glimpse, but it can't do this for everyone. You must do it for yourself. And so use these stories and these analogies to get an idea. Hmm? So, of course, his students would go on over hundreds of years while cultures evolved, education evolved, understanding evolved, right? People's capacities change over time. Shakyamuni said this how many times? Nietzschean certainly says it all the time, reminds us, yes? That's why Nietzschean's doctrine is so important to us, because it's relevant to our time, our capacities. In Shakyamuni's view, the people of a given era would grow in capacity and language to understand the teachings more profoundly over time and cultures. This, then, was the imperative to teach in the language of the people and the era one is teaching within. Nichiren certainly looked upon the Lotus Sutra in particular, the collection of sutras compiled by the Indian scholar monk Kumarajiva, as the actual teachings, therefore, of Shakyamuni. There's a lot of argument about this from earlier schools of thought, the Pali school, which is totally an invention of that sect, right? Because when, once the translations started happening, they were translated into Gandhari languages, uh, that area, Gandhara. I've showed you this book before of uh, recent 20th century discoveries in the northeastern, what used to be northeastern uh, India, right? That India, that region called uh, Gandhara. Um, it has some translations. A really wonderful read. Um, 
but all kinds of languages. Yes, Pali, but Sanskrit, but uh, um, other, sorry, other scripts. Um, what is it? Anyway, point is, the collection of sutras or collection of writings that are called in a modern terms, the Lotus Sutra, going all the way back to, you know, just a few hundred years after uh, the beginning of centuries, right, the common era, um, Kumara Jiva was translating from several different languages, really, uh, into Chinese, this compendium of the Lotus Sutra, the Lotus teachings, and there were several and at some points, the Lotus Sutra was 27 chapters, and H. Kern studied that, that one. Um, those 27 chapters, though, not only became 28, but some were dropped and others put in. So, eh, right? So there was a, a focus, an understanding of scholars who understood that period, that eight-year period of teachings, and understood the teachings that were fundamental and somewhat sequential of the Lotus period and some that were, were they just different translations of kind of the same thing? Were they maybe kind of shoehorned in from a scholar monk who was giving their opinion and didn't really belong or was it repetitive or was it a cr critical part, right? Tendai did a lot of work on identifying that structure, right? Talking about the first nine chapters being the, um, what did he call them? Um, anyway, they're the, the, the provisional part of the Lotus Sutra, setting the thing up. The middle chapters being the critical, you know, meat of the Lotus Sutra. And then the validation chapters afterward. He kind of broke it. And for many scholars, the Lotus Sutra is really three parts. Right. That's not where threefold comes from, by the way. Threefold comes from the introductory uh, sutra, which is almost, you could say, the three initial chapters of the Lotus Sutra, which would then make it 31 chapters long, right? Or 32 if you include the epilogue chapter. But they're treated as separate sutras. Okay. I mean, even the Lotus Sutra itself begins in its introduction talking about the preamble, if you will, right? The prologue of itself, the immeasurable meanings hmm? as a, a, a different meditation. Anyway, you'll read all about that in my translation, uh, transliteration, if you will, and annotated Lotus Sutra. Uh, I think it's important to tie these things together. Why th take things as, well, this is the Lotus Sutra, this is how it works. It's, oh, it's related to this. Oh, I see how they're interrelated. Oh, maybe that's just a name for... It's nice to be able to put this thing in, what do they say, putting your ducks in a row. I never really understood what that meant, except that there's an order to things. We think linearly. That's samsara. That's our mind. Yeah? But there's a way to get around that mind, the mind. It's not a different mind, but there's a... There's a mind that's not attached 
not reliant on that line to experience the whole of everything at once. But we're jumping ahead. So let me continue with this first part. Like you're stopping me. <laughs> so Kumana Jiva is the actual teachings, therefore, of Shakyamuni. In other words, you could claim that somebody who's writing this stuff down hundreds of years after Shakyamuni's dead, that, well, those can't be the words of Shakyamuni because he's been dead 400 years. But you could also say that the scientists today that are discovering things like uh, the microwave background radiation and the, the gravitational waves and quantum mechanics and quantum fields, that they're not uh, diminishing or uh, some separate lineage of uh, scientific rigor than Albert Einstein. Einstein, his, his theories and his mathematics are what led to the insights of these current scientists. For many of them, that's their starting point. So many what they've discovered recently, they could say, is the result of Einstein's great work. Would they be lying? Of course not. They're just getting better tools, better insights, better mechanisms of knowing more deeply that which Albert was talking about. Which would be, I'm sure, would make Mr. Einstein quite happy because he always felt incomplete. And, and a true researcher and a student of this cosmos, could, could you imagine if, if a great mind were to stand up in front of you and say, I know everything? Wouldn't that put you off immediately? What gives you the idea, <laughs> right? No, none of them would say that. They're excited by the rigor of knowing, researching, digging. And they're excited by discovery. And right away, their discovery suggests there's more to discover. That's, that's a full life, yes? Well, in many ways, this is Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't say what Shakyamuni said on October 7th of this year of that time in that place. That's, that's it. That's everything. Shakyamuni would shudder if he heard you say that. Right? I'm sharing with this, this with you so that whoever you talk to, in whatever language, in whatever place, in whatever time, you can make them understand from their point of view this amazing, excellent thing. The cosmos. It's much bigger than Siddhartha Gautama. Yes? So... Let me start over again, because I got off track there. Nietzschean certainly looked upon the Lotus Sutra, in particular the collection of sutras compiled by the Indian scholar monk Kumara Jiva as the actual teachings, therefore, of Shakyamuni. Why wouldn't he? They are. If only further elucidated by centuries of scholarship and the transitions of the three periods 
of the former, the right dharma according to the people's capacity, the middle semblance dharma according to the people's inability to accept the dharma, sometimes called the counterfeit dharma, and the latter age or the degenerate ages of the dharma due to the people's lack of investment in the teaching and lapsing into formalism and cults of personality. Yikes, that's us. That's where we are, right? People do things today not because there's merit in any of it. The merit they find is in the fashion of things, the cultism of things, the what shoes do you wear, Louis Vuitton? Oh, well, better shoes than anyone else. Really? I mean, the shoes may be great, but they're not great because of a person's name. Right? Everything is branding now. I don't just eat toast. I eat blah, blah, blah toast. Therefore, I'm superior. I'm part of an elite group who eats only blah, blah, blah. Right? Easy to do with a philosophy like the Lotus Sutra. Just claim it for your own. Hell, throw in some magical stuff and mysticism in there that no one can understand and you could just justify to make your Lotus Sutra the best one. Nichiren Shoshu, I'm talking to you. <laughs> the teaching is amazing enough without what? Using your ego to make it more special? What are you doing? The misunderstanding of this critical point is often the subject of controversies and attacks from practitioners of earlier teachings to claim superiority over the lotus. Nietzsche battles these erroneous views in person and in many writings, like, for instance, his Gosho on the errors in eight schools the eight schools that were that very predominant in his time in Japan. And he points out how they're all derivations, deviations, and outright lies. Ouch, right? Just calls them out. However, the misinformation continues to propagate to this day. I used to, I don't anymore. Namo Myoho protection of, the, uh, um, of my Buddhist practice. But I remember in my early days getting people angry emails from uh, Theravadists and um, other, you know, Hinayana or Tripitaka schools. And I, you know, it's hard. How do you deal with that? Because they're so convinced. You can get into their face, but then it's, you know, it gets angry. And I'm not interested in having those battles. I certainly don't anymore. Um, of any uh, in any way, yeah, I don't even engage it anymore. You'll find out that you found me and you have something to argue about. Actually, is a positive negation because it means you're looking around, and sooner or later you're going to understand the waters that you're swimming in, and so you'll figure it out. right? The controversy continues. The myth of the three vehicles, Sarvakas, Pratyakabuddhas, and pre-Lotus Bodhisattva, or that uh, Arhat thing, 
as though the Mahayana were a completely separate fourth vehicle. They just look at Mahayana entirely as not of Shakyamuni, which is ridiculous. It's what Shakyamuni wanted explicitly. Teaching rather than a development of scholarship prescribed by Shakyamuni himself for the full awakening of Buddhahood as a contemporary experience in one's actual lifetime. Right? For a bit more on this, see the section below on the Bodhisattva of the Lotus Sutra. And that's, that's all I wrote about Mahayana. Just as a, to encapsulate the mindset of this school and certainly of the Nichiren's doctrine of the Lotus Sutra. Yeah. Now, when it comes to Shoju versus Shakabuku, in the Lotus Sutra, after the first nine chapters of the justifications and preparations for a large paradigm shift in the teachings of enlightenment for the entrenched monastic communities maintaining of ancient ideas of reincarnation or some form of afterlife directly in the face of the doctrines of impermanence, emptiness, and liberation, and cessation, this is a very profound problem in the proper understanding and practice of Lotus Sutra Buddhism, and therefore must be confronted. In fact, the Lotus Sutra is a confrontation of those schools of thought. He wasn't confronting his earlier teachings. He was confronting the inability of these monks to get past their old cultural training and using his, own, his very teachings to compound their errors. And the Lotus Sutra says, okay, I'm done trying to teach to your capacities. Now, the Lotus Sutra, I'm going to tell you how I got there, how everyone can and should get there, and you need to get off of this ship. Not the ship I've been offering you, but the one you keep force, forcing into my teachings. And he does a compassionate way of doing that and a very strong way of doing that throughout the first nine chapters. In, this, in the parable of the conjured city or the apparitional city or whatever translation you're reading of chapter seven, Shakyamuni introduces the idea that those Shravakas and Pratyekabuddhas looking to the achievement of Arhat or Arhant as the ultimate goal of their Buddhist practice in the attainment of Nirvana, for these Arhats, the idea or eventuality of Buddhahood or the experience of Buddha was some far distant, if ever attainable, state involving multitudes of lifetimes and not imaginable in this lifetime. Well, that's not Buddhism. So where did that come from? Why is that still held by these students who are not being taught this? But because this is their inculcated way of thinking, Shakyamuni is trying to use it to break it up and it just won't let go of it. So you find it in translations of earlier sutras all the time. This discussion of in a future, in your future life, in this future life, not another, you know, where uh, where you'll go meet a different Buddha. What? All that fancy storytelling 
it's it's it was you could say it was provisional, but it's also also darkly colored by the limitations of those people's capacities. So the Lotus Sutra says, okay, we're done doing that because it's it's poison. And so this is only attributable to the ingrained ideas of previous generations of Indian culture and religious uh, religions for whom reincarnation was simply a fact of life. It was now time to dissolve this erroneous and improper concept in Buddhist practice. In The Conjured City, Shakyamuni makes it clear that the nirvana, quote-unquote, that the arhats accept they have achieved is in fact a false belief. That a conjured nirvana, like the conjured city, simply to assuage their laziness and lack of resolve to attain the true goal of practice. This provisional nirvana was like the conjured city, a resting space for the preparation of the practitioners to aspire to the final journey to Buddhahood. Not in another lifetime, not in millions of eons. It was, after all, Siddhartha's stated mission on his determined path to enlightenment that the only thing that would suffice is the ultimate truth for all living beings to live this lifetime free of stress and anxieties, to enable all sentient beings to live this life fully without regret to the full of their potential. That was his goal, right? Buddhahood, as it came to be called, was the goal for this life, not some future dream or fantasy. For Nichiren, this was a palpable and obvious paradigm shift in propagation. The achievement of calm and equanimity of the Sharvaka and Pratyagabuddha were a soft propagation, shoju, indicative of the second Dharma age, the semblance Dharma, incomplete and fa falling short of the true goal of attainment of Buddha-ness. In, in order for these fourfold or sixfold assemblies to progress, what was required was a strong break of misunderstanding and erroneous belief. The word Nichiren used was shakubuku, literally Japanese, break and subdue, in which the resistance of the other Buddhist person, and that's important because this is a practice between Buddhists, hmm? Not for those who don't know anything about Buddhism. So that's important also. Is to destroy by forceful argument. It must be noted that this was a practice devised and directed at other Buddhist schools and practitioners rather than those ignorant of Buddhist teachings altogether. So the difference between Shoju and Shakabudu, yeah? Now, identification. Identification is a word I use a lot. It's central to the teachings of Buddhism and uh, the teachings of uh, Nichiren as he expounds on Shakyamuni's teaching. The problem of identification is the crux of Shakyamuni's enlightenment. In brief, please refer to my books on Buddhism reference for deeper dives into the terms of Buddhism. The cause of anxieties and stresses, also termed suffering, is our mental clinging to the past and our projected future as the source or objective 
of our craving. All this craving and clinging revolves around an idea of self that is constructed in the mind as a collection of is and is not. In other words, we create an idea of self via our possessions or lack of. For an analogy, let us consider the making of a film. The creation of a film is a process of capturing moments in a snapshot, right? And lining them up one after another to represent the passage of time and to show the changes over time from one snapshot to the next. That's the invention of film, yeah? Look at the Moybridge uh, nudes. Uh, he, set, uh, he set up a whole row of cameras and had them go off one after another as a person or a horse went by. And he was able to identify whether a, four, a horse was ever in fully in the air or if there was always at least one foot on the ground. This was the, the, the rapid movement toward film, right? Meanwhile, what you might forget in that process is that we're accruing a huge amount of snapshots to store each of those moments. This is what the mind does. That's samsara. All of these moments for the opportunity to replay them again and again. But when we replay them, they're not the same moment, are they? But we treat them like they are. Why remember when, but that moment, it no longer exists, except it's stored in your mind. And when you recall it, you now invest with your current mind. The way you remember that isn't the same as that experience was. It's a new way of seeing, again, a very, very similar action. But it's not the same. But we tell ourselves it is. See this? You, you can see the problem here, right? So, in, in this way, we own each moment. We own it. And we can rearrange or edit it at will for revisions of our film for replay. This is the way I remember it. Mm -hmm. The film reflects on our sensibilities, talents, storytelling, some aspects of our self. We see, quote unquote, ourselves in the films. The more films we create, the more, quote, real and indelible our, quote, self becomes. We build warehouses of these snapshots over time as uh, further complexity and elaboration on our identity of this constantly revising self. Some of these snapshots and films fade over time and even begin to represent aspects and identifications we no longer agree with or even ideas we wish to get rid of. Embarrassing. We become managers of our warehouse of identification of things, of situations, relationships, possessions, self. This becomes quickly a full-time activity that produces stress, anxiety, confrontations. <gasps> what are we talking about? The truth of the matter, though, is that this is not how life happens. Real life has no snapshots. The snapshots are constructions of the mind. Samsara. Our sentient mind is capable of experience without the need or requirements of snapshots. Life occurs in moments. 
from moment to moment. Life is a contiguous process of instantiations from a sphere of potential, producing and influenced in a two-way interaction between potential and instantiation. The cosmos is a vast collection in each instance of instantiations, discrete and singular moments, from the potential of quiescent energy, again, refer to the book Buddhism Reference, descriptions of the moment, each planet, asteroid, sun, star, moon, is a subset of that potential formed into an expression of form. That, quote, form, being a momentary instantiation of tendencies and conditions that is, again, influenced into a new instantiation via its environments, etc. A human being, tree, liver, animal, no different, each is instantiated in momentum. No thing is static. No thing exists in and of itself. Everything is in flux, in process, instantiating from its potential from moment to moment. Never static, never a snapshot. A transience of expression. With this understanding, one can experience life fully engaged in its process and free of craving or clinging, because... It just doesn't make any sense, which at this point seems irrelevant to crave or cling because it's happening anew, 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 right? In a moment is where and when everything happens authentically. To live authentically is the goal of Buddhism. Whether it is called awakening, enlightenment, or Buddha, the dignity and authenticity Authentic experience of life is free from warehouses and self-identification. The identity is in the being, not the has been or is going to be. To Shagamuni, this is the priori law or maxim of the universe, and all phenomena are derived from it. Although this perception must by its nature be part and parcel of the entire cosmos from its inception throughout unforeseeable time. It is not experienced anywhere or any time other than in the sentient mind of we mundane mortals. To be born, manifest as human, is then a precious and rare opportunity to witness and immerse ourselves into this momentum of life. To assist others to come to this realization then becomes the highest expression of a life well-lived, the framework of Bodhisattva. And then the next section we get into scholarship. But, you know, yeah, it's about 40 minutes. I think I will leave. We'll get back to this in, in the next video. We'll start with scholarship, Buddhism of the mind, because that really gets into the nine consciousnesses. Yeah, and then the Bodhisattva of the Lotus Sutra. That'll be a good, a good uh, set. Well, I hope this is just a forward to um, a transliteration of the Lotus Sutra. I provided it as a bit of a framework, um, a bit of a mind creating kind of a space for, okay, now we're going to talk about the Lotus Sutra with these things understood. Many people start reading the Lotus Sutra, maybe everyone who starts reading the Lotus Sutra reads it without this kind of preparation, right? I mean, uh, we, 
we don't really live in enclosed, separated, isolated concentrations for uh, preparations to learn the ultimate teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha. We tend to just kind of jump in unprepared. And so the forward, as I wrote it, was just a way to get your mind open, some, maybe dust off some chairs you haven't sat in in a while, just a mind space to be able to go, okay, now when I read these words, there'll be some kind of a context, right? And maybe I should change the word forward to context. Um, having said all that, I hope you feel uh, comfortable, free to make suggestions, understanding that the forward isn't meant to explain everything, that it's meant to create a safe space of some idea of the territory we're about to enter. Yeah. Right. Let's show you how to make the sailboat move and how to stay safe on it before we send you off on a journey. Right? We don't want to just plop you in the middle of the ocean and go, good luck. <laughs> right? Okay. So, again, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your practice. In that, uh, lots of links in the description to uh, the website where you can find out more about this. Um, lots of free information. Of course, the podcasts are also free. Um, also, the bookstore, if you want to order a copy, read along with me. Um, of course, get the proper mandala. And in the meantime, I just want you to take care of your health, okay? Do that so you can keep your practice strong. Savor it. Thank you for your support, patrons. Universally worthy bodhisattvas. All. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you in the next one. Bye for now.